You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcasts to listen to more author interviews. Welcome to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. This is Donna Bartlett, your host. And today we have with us two wonderful guests that I'm so excited to be speaking with from Australia. We have Dr. Patrick Russell, an internist from Royal Adelaide Hospital. And we also have Dr. Arduino Mangoni. He's a professor at clinical pharmacology at Flinders University, South Australia. So welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Delighted to be here. Likewise. Thank you. So I was just so happy to see this three-part series that we can all find in the Senior Care Pharmacist Journal for March 2023, April 2023, and May 2023. And it's a three-part series called Deprescribing Antihypertensive Medications in Older People, a Narrative Review. This was just so eye-catching because I think sometimes we're just you know, oh, do we dare touch the antihypertensives, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'd love to know just, you know, how you got to hear a little bit about both of you and how you really got to collaborating on such a three-part series for us. Well, Arduino and I have known each other since about 2006 when I moved to South Australia where he was already working, but we started working on in the area of deprescribing in about 2015. and. We worked on a couple of uh, uh, cohort studies of uh, older people being discharged from hospital and having deprescribing and looking at outcomes. And so we've got a few publications already that came out in Therapeutic Advances of uh, Drug Safety, and we're really proud of that work. And so we just moved on from there. And, and I agree with what you say, Donna, that antihypertensives seem like sacred cows when it comes to older people at at higher cardiovascular risk than younger people. And that's that's not actually the case. They are touchable and they ought to be reviewed logically and rationally, just like any medication considered for prescribing and deprescribing. Yeah, for sure. If, if, if you don't mind, I'll also say the topic is just so big, blood pressure control and outcomes. And that's why we, we broke it up into three parts. And because we certainly wanted to emphasize at the same time, emphasize the importance of good prescribing of antihypertensive medications. We did not set out to talk about and to sell people on the idea of stopping medicines, but rather looking carefully and considering the evidence for each patient they see. And the evidence is overwhelming that antihypertensive therapy in someone who is hypertensive is a good bet. And then there are these caveats that we ought to be thoughtful of. So, yeah. When I'm talking to older people who I'm counseling or if I'm doing some sessions, I'll often say, you know, you, you took the medication for a reason and it was probably very correct at that time, but 20 years yeah. later, we might need to make some adjustments. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And they're like, oh, you know, it makes them think a little differently. So I totally appreciate what you're saying about the good prescribing. And good prescribing, as we know, is also deprescribing too. And so I think it goes hand in hand. And I'm just so excited. These three parts are just awesome, each one after the other. So let's talk about part one a little bit. You talk a bit about the history of the treatment and 
You mentioned that evidence falls short in older adults, which we find that in a lot of guidelines, unfortunately. But could you just, you know, give that history a little bit and what was going on that maybe we didn't have the information for older adults in this historical sure, information? Sure, thanks. And I'm, I'm hogging a lot, a lot of this, but I, I, I love the topic. And so I'll, I'll happily throw some of my ideas out there. And that is that, uh, you know, starting in really the 1930s and 40s, there was a bit of evidence coming out that people who were hypertensive were at greater risk of cardiovascular events, heart attacks, and strokes. And then there was this this seminal study from the the VA cooperative study in the late 60s that demonstrated that an intervention can, in fact, reduce events. But they enrolled people who were markedly hypertensive that we would consider no-brainers now, but they enrolled people who were not markedly hypertensive, put them on some therapy, and reduced outcomes. And then slowly over the succeeding decades, other studies came along that demonstrated that, for example, a systolic blood pressure of 160 is better than a systolic blood pressure of 180, and so on and so forth, down to 150 and 140 and and further. Older people, robust older people, I think should be treated the same as younger people. And there are a lot of robust 80-year-olds, 85-year-olds, and 90-year-olds out there in the community driving their friends to their doctor's appointments, going to bridge club. And those people should be treated as if they were 60 years old, I believe. I don't think it's – I agree with the, uh, the evidence that age alone should not be a deterrent to good blood pressure control. Yeah. It's when you get into – Areas where, and it's a slippery slope, an older person who was once robust for a variety of reasons begins to have limited mobility, the frailty, some cognitive impairment, other morbidities that creep in. That's when it begins to uh, get a bit sketchy because the big studies that were done specifically in older people, for example, the SPRINT study and HIVET, and STEP, these are big, big multinational studies that showed that even in older people, 80 years and above, that lower blood pressure in, and intensively controlled even is effective. But those studies did not enroll people with advanced frailty or some cognitive impairment. And the reason, Donna, probably is that It is very difficult, and it makes a study extremely hard to pull off if you are enrolling complicated patients like that. From nursing homes, for example, arranging follow-up for a study for somebody from from nursing home would not be easy. And so if you're you're building a big multinational study, of course you would would have to exclude these patients who would make the study unfeasible. Sure. I fully endorse what uh, Patrick is saying. I think one of the other uh, significant issue here is that, as Patrick was alluding to, the kind of older people that we manage in this contemporary era is vastly different from the older people that used to be managed, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago because of this increased complexity and high inter-individual variability, not just in their organ function, but also in their frailty, socioeconomic circumstances, and so on. 
so, so we really need to have an individualized approach, in my opinion. But this approach clash with the current approach of cardiovascular risk assessment, because if you look at all the major cardiovascular risk scores, including the Framingham or the European scores, or even the Australian cardiovascular risk scores, as soon as you turn 75, the score doesn't work for you anymore because you're automatically labeled as being at high risk. Now, again, this is a broadly broad generalization. It really doesn't take into account your quality of life and your life expectancy. So being at a high cardiovascular risk but having a life expectancy of six months for other reasons should really be, I guess, managed uh, specifically and differently for the broad group of people at high cardiovascular risk. So this is why I think also for the reason highlighted by Patrick, that we really uh, face significant challenges in trying to individualize treatment in view of this high inter-individual variability. Yeah. And you bring up so many good points there too about what we looked years ago in our 60s and 70s looks very different now and when we're looking at 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s even, where people are living longer and more complex, like you said, but also all the other new meds that they're on and all these other comorbidities that we're treating successfully and chronically also make a difference. So I, I definitely agree that our subjects are very different from years ago. So great points for sure. I want to touch a little bit on the second part and even the third part too, but the second part, I just absolutely love that you've brought up the J-curve and, and it's really made me think about there's got to be other J curves in our world too, which I think we can all agree with, with various therapies. There are other J curves. <laughs> there are totally more J curves. I'm on it. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, and, and they, they, they must move. It can't be as, mm-hmm. it can't be static. The, the J curve, high glycemic control is the, the, is the obvious next step. And, yeah. You, know, you see this J curve on the on glycemic control, and in fact, it does move. Yeah. So yes, I I agree. I'm delighted that it appeals to you. The idea that the J curve might not be a, a static, a fixed monument. Yeah, yeah, and we even talk about with TSH levels too, and for endocrinology and thyroid and. As older adults, that J curve moves too. So there's a lot of J curves that we don't even call J curves, but they're there. So I think it's more to explore, but but please fill us in a little bit more in part two and part three, if you don't mind. I'd love to. Part part one is to emphasize the importance of blood pressure control in people who are hypertensive and and just to make sure that everyone is clear that we believe in, in good blood pressure control and even using medications to achieve it. And we roll through in part one the, um, you know, just the, the big levels of evidence specifically that included older people. And I mean 80s and above older people. But And part two is to start saying, though part one said that lower is better, there is such a thing as too low. Mm-hmm. And and too low in the past was considered maybe a diastolic blood pressure of less than 60, but that this idea might change a bit. The J-curve might move over to the right-hand side. That is, what is considered too low might move up a bit. Mm-hmm. And we looked at various uh, studies. This is this observational data that 
that there might be such a thing as too low and introduce the idea that frailty might be a way to identify when when that curve might be moving to the right-hand side a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then in part three, it is just starting to, to introduce the idea of stopping blood pressure medications. What, is it, what happens? You know, I mean, does, does do things blow up? And the answer is, well, most of the time, probably nothing. If you pick the right patient, I think it's all about picking the right patient. And there are ample opportunities, and we see them every day in hospital, discharging people on two or more blood pressure lowering medications with a systolic blood pressure less than 120. And we do it thoughtlessly and we do it simply because of inertia and we just sort of continue on with what they were on prior to their hospital stay so the third part is to introduce evidence that's already there for what happens if you in picking the right patient what happens when you stop blood pressure and it deep prescribing isn't an original idea there there was plenty of uh, evidence going back 50 years for stopping studies, you know, studies where they would stop medication and see what happens. And, mm. and, and blood pressure does indeed go up. But the point of, the, of part three is that it often will not exceed treatment thresholds. Like if I see this person who's systolic 120 and I say, listen, let's stop this, this uh, 2.5 milligrams of perindopril or a low dose of something. Let's stop that and see what happens. In follow-up, generally the blood pressure has increased a bit but not enough for me to restart the medicine. Yeah, that's great. One thing that if I can briefly expand on what uh, Patrick is saying, I think a typical example of the dynamic nature of starting and monitoring patients is probably in the realm of Alzheimer's dementia because now there are a lot of epidemiological data that do show that uh, if you successfully control your blood pressure, your hypertension in young and middle age, there is a significant reduced risk, not just of vascular dementia, but also Alzheimer's dementia. However, there are other studies that show that in the months or years preceding the onset and the progression of dementia, the blood pressure is lower than in people that do not develop dementia. So again, this emphasizes that I think uh, you need to be vigilant and monitor treatment and the need for antihypertensive medication throughout you know, the life cycle of an individual because perhaps you need to make some readjustment if circumstances change. For example, if there is element of developing frailty or some concerns of an impending cognitive impairment, you know, you'd really probably need to have more options to proactively adjust their antihypertensive medications. Yeah. So I have a question, and it's really more about the isolated systolic hypertension. So, and we know that a lot of older adults, that is how they present with this isolated systolic hypertension. So, what about that? Like, how how do you go about that? And do you ever deprescribe? And I, I and I know that that's you know never say never or always, <laughs> but just thinking about that, is it more difficult to deprescribe in that situation, or how might you tackle that? I, I think it ought to be approached like any other patient with hypertension and looking for a suitable patient primarily. And, but if, say, the systolic is, is 170, 175, 
I personally would continue their antihypertensive therapy, even if their diastolic was 65 or 70. But so I would I would approach them the same way I approach any other hypertensive patient. I, I would be trying to find the suitable person to consider first, and that is someone with advanced frailty or someone with cognitive impairment or someone who has limited life expectancy. Not to switch from your original question of systolic hypertension to a different question of limited life expectancy, but just so that we don't forget this particular point, because I think it's really important. It's hard to predict. Sure. It's hard to predict how long somebody has. But mm-hmm. what we found, at least in South Australia, is when people were discharged from hospital to permanent placement in a nursing home, and I'm talking about patients over the age of 75, mm-hmm. permanent placement in a nursing home, they had a 50% one-year mortality. And so that can serve as a reasonable prognostic factor and a flag for rationalizing their medications. If I'm discharging this patient to a nursing home for permanent placement, I ought to really consider the prognosis. Would I be very surprised if they had passed away within the next 12 months? And I should consider all of their medicines in light of that prognosis. But your original question was about uh, isolated systolic hypertension. I think that's a tricky one. I think the evidence is non-existent to support uh, de-prescribing, and it might be the right thing, it might be the wrong thing. And so for me personally, I would stick with trying to identify the people most suitable for de-prescribing and then applying the same principles. That is, uh, I'm looking for this patient whose blood pressure is already well-controlled, maybe too well-controlled, right? looking for an opportunity to stop to stop the medicine and with a, with a trial of cessation, trial of withdrawal, and with mm-hmm. close follow-up in a month or two to reassess the blood pressure. One of the things that we do see in Australia, Don, I'm not sure whether you have a similar experience in North America, is that perhaps a factor that might facilitate our job is that uh, sometimes there is a subgroup of people with uh, isolated systolic hypertension that also have significant orthostatic hypotension. Oh, right. And yeah. this is uh, normally because people with isolated systolic hypertension tends to have stiffer arteries, and as a result, there is uh, a reduced uh, sensitivity of some receptors that adjust your blood pressure when you stand up. Mm-hmm. So you have the concomitant of you know sitting or supine isolated systolic hypertension and a significant orthostatic hypotension. So in these sort of circumstances, if the patient has still a, a reasonable quality of life and a reasonable independence, I would prioritize them being independent without orthostatic or less orthostatic symptoms uh, mm-hmm. uh, rather than you know having a controlled sitting or supine blood pressure. So uh, this might be a factor in some uh, circumstances but I agree uh, with Patrick that overall, uh, other than that, there is really very little evidence to guide our decisions apart from, for example, considering other individual patient factors like frailty. Yeah, that's great. And great scenarios to just provide examples to and how you really have to be looking at the whole person. And that's just so important with what we do and optimizing medicines. So I'm really interested in so you're thinking about these changes or you're making changes or you're suggesting changes, maybe any one of those. And then, you know, maybe they're moving on to, 
you know, out of the hospitals or transitions of care, et cetera. Do you have issues with this de-prescribing, with resistance from patients, fear of patients, maybe of what do you mean you're going to stop that? Or even other providers who are now like taking over the care and they're going, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Kind of thing. So I'm just curious about any of those, you know, good, bad, or indifferent type of issues that you might have come across when you're trying to do de-prescribing of antihypertensives. Well, definitely I encounter opposition all the time. And I think it's just the diffusion of innovation, Donna, and it just takes a while for any decent idea to catch on. And <laughs> and there's resistance from patients sometimes, especially if I don't have an established relationship with them. And for example, if I haven't made a very good first impression, that happens. <laughs> um, you know, de- developing rapport and trust within the first 10 seconds, I think is pretty important. And, mm-hmm. and giving people a number of options to try to encourage them to consider stopping a medication and, and describing a follow-up period that allows a, a safety net so if they can feel more comfortable with them, they don't feel like you're just thoughtlessly stopping some medicines. And then often enough from the hospital to the outpatient sector, a a primary care physician might easily think that it was a mistake. The intern was busy. They forgot to prescribe this and they re-prescribe it for that reason alone. Trying to do the right thing, trying to be diligent. It just highlights the importance of good communication between the hospital sector and the outpatient sector. And uh, a, a phone call, a quick phone call to a busy practitioner that then you know, writes a, a brief note in the chart, I think can really go a long ways to maintaining a rational list of medications without a lot of adjustments. But uh, sometimes a person's blood pressure might go back up and, okay, good thing yeah. we have these medicines to help control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I think it's important, yeah. like you said, to have that, you know, follow-up time. And if it's not appropriate, you can always go back on it kind of thing. In hospital, which is where most of my practice is, I I find that the trainee doctors are a bit resistant to change anything. And so I I think it's a great opportunity for them to see what happens when you do stop. Hey, let's stop this amlodipine and I'll show you that everything goes okay over the next couple of days. (laughs) And it's also, so it's an opportunity to introduce these ideas to younger house staff as well as the clinical pharmacists who uh, attend rounds. So we all round together. And I think they, more than the house staff, like to see the rational prescribing these concepts applied so that they can see that I supported as the attending physician, I I support this concept. Then they can then promote it a bit without without feeling like an outlier. Right, right. I'm glad you brought up amlodipine because that's probably one of the ones I make the most recommendations on, especially if there's a lot of edema. (laughs) I'm like, can we get that off or at least lower it, please? (laughs) It's one of these medicines that leads to prescribing cascade. First, you're on the amlodipine and then you're on the the, uh, furosemide. Right. The diuretics to try to chase the ankle edema. And then you're on some potassium to try to chase the hypokalemia that's caused, but you know, I mean, when you're de-prescribing, you also need to consider the, uh, that you might be tapping into a cascade. um, Absolutely. And so consider all the connected medications. Yeah. So just 
you know, thinking a little bit more, you've provided some great pearls for us in regards to the rapport and the trust with the patients and, and even interprofessionally providing options for the patients and just that great communication between providers too, just so that we're all on the same page. So I think those pearls are really important. So, and, and then you also talked about the residents, new providers, if you will, and new practitioners. And how do we teach them? Like, do you think it has to be part of the curriculum for these medical schools and any kind of healthcare type of education that we should be adding in deprescribing in a little bit more of a formal manner? It's a great, it's a great question. I don't write curricula and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not a part of that. And I'll bet you most of your listeners are also not a part of that. And so that might be beyond me to uh, incorporate it into a medical school teaching curriculum, but it, but there are absolutely some things I can do today. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them is to, to model good, thoughtful prescribing, to talk about it, to chat about it to the house staff and get them in the habit of thinking about it. Each time we walk out of the room, we're going to stop and take a look at the Medicaid. Yes, I see the, I see the blood work. It's really important. And yes, that chest X-ray is too. But let's, let's pull up this medication list and make sure we're doing the right thing. And just roll through each of these medicines real quick. Just uh, 10 seconds rolling through them is better than none. And because one out of 10 times we'll find something that they don't really need or that might be placing them in harm's way. And so you ask, what can I do? I'm, I'm, I'm not on the medical school curriculum board and probably would choose not to be. But there's plenty of things that I can do today. To, to influence, and I think modeling is, is the best thing that I can do. And I think also modeling a collaborative relationship with the clinical pharmacist. They know a lot of stuff that I don't know. And I say this all the time to the house staff in front of the pharmacist. I said, listen, you need to pull this pharmacist in here close to this medication list. They know a bunch of stuff you don't know. You know a bunch of stuff they don't know, but we can, we can provide better care together. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's the other thing I think I can model well and and do right by a patient is is having these good working relationships around the medication list where the pharmacists are asking some questions, some thoughtful, provocative questions even, mm-hmm. and where the house staff, the residents are doing the same thing of the pharmacist. Mm-hmm. Hey, what can you do? You think there are any side effects of this medicine? Any drug drug interactions that I need to be thoughtful about that I might not have considered and I think that's just, that's really tight care. So that's, that's the thing that I can do. I, I'm not for the curriculum writing, but I, I can mm-hmm. model good professional behavior and, and good collaborative care. Well, I hope someday I have a chance to actually work by your side because that is all I want. And the providers that I work with is exactly what you're saying. So that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> and Arduino, what about you? What are your thoughts here? Oh, absolutely. There is evidence from the literature I understand that a primary care physician might question some of the decisions made by a specialist during hospital time, but there is also evidence that uh, changes that are started and implemented by specialists are more likely to be taken on board by general primary care physicians rather than the other way around. 
so I think, I think as long as we provide a rationale, a quick explanation for what we're doing, these decisions are probably more likely to be agreed upon in the, in the long run. I think the problem is when you have your patient discharged back to the surgery uh, with two or three fewer medications and no explanation about why that happened, this mm-hmm. might, I guess, uh, uh, raise some concerns about, you know, particular decision made during hospital stay. So I think, I think communication is, uh, is of the essence because very often, you know, what we do is very rational, but I think it has to be communicated to, you know, to the people that look after this person after discharge. Mm, for sure. So I want to ask what's next for you two? What are you writing on? <laughs> uh, well, thanks. We're, we're working on a protocol at the moment. Thank you for asking. And it's it's about stopping antihypertensives in old frail people and who are inpatients. And it'd be a non-inferiority study looking at in, enrolling people with a certain level of frailty assessed by physiotherapists, by a physical therapist. And then um, uh, if their systolic's less than 120 and they're on two or more medications, it might lower blood pressure, stopping some. Mm-hmm. And having a follow-up at about three months, our hypothesis is their blood pressure will not have increased past 150, mm-hmm. systolic that is. And we mm-hmm. have some exclusion criteria and some inclusion criteria, but we're interested in this transition of older people who've been in hospital and have some level of frailty and whose blood pressure is too intensively controlled. Mm-hmm. They're trying to break some of the inertia that we see in hospital. And the yeah. best way to um, change practice is to pull some clinical research around the question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Evidence, right? Yeah, that, that's probably a couple of years away yeah. uh, from enrollment, but because it usually takes about a year of groundwork before we submit something to ethics. But anyway, that's that's what we hope to do. Well, I, I, think, I think Patrick is right, I guess, uh, in these sort of uh, trials, in terms of raising awareness, I think the first thing is to provide reassurance that we're not doing any harm. And this is exactly what, what we're trying to do. And Patrick was uh, instrumental in leading some uh, published research that does show that deprescribing overall in this sort of category of people is not really harmful over months after discharge. And now we're trying to focus our interventions to uh, antihypertensive medications. And this really will be, I guess, an important study if and when done because it will provide much needed information about how to design appropriately and power a larger prospective study where you physically, you know, randomize people to, uh, you know, deprescribing versus, you know, uh, traditional care. It's mm, great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation that we've had today and just enlightening many <laughs> of, of us on really you know, getting a little bit more comfortable with good decision-making and especially with antihypertensives in our older adults. So thank you for your work in this area and guidance. Again, we just want to thank our audience too for listening in. This is Donna Bartlett with the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. And today we've had with us two wonderful guests, Dr. Patrick Russell and Dr. Arduino Mangoni both of Australia. Thank you so much for being here today. Their three-part series can be found in the Senior Care Pharmacist Journal, parts one, two, and three. They are in the March 
April and May 2023 publications. And the title is Deprescribing Antihypertensives Medications in Older People, a Narrative Review. So thank you so much to our guests for being here with us today. Donna, you asked great questions. Thanks so much for the invite. And uh, likewise, Donna, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy your evening in North America. We're still enjoying uh, a very cloudy morning here in Australia. Yeah, (laughs) I love the time difference and we're still able to do this. It's awesome. (laughs) Thank you both. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcast to listen to more author interviews.